This has been a weird uh, week of sermon prep um, for me, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, we're in the week 13 of our summer series, Acts, comma, like a Christian, where we've been looking at the book of Acts specifically from the vantage point of what it says to the Christian life today in 2021, um, the way we might live. And I'm, I'm just going to be a little bit transparent uh, about my thought processes this week because I am fully human, and this week has been a roller coaster to say the least. Um, and even though every pastor knows that he's going to lose people in his congregation, um, at some point, someone's going to die at some point. I do not have a formula for how to handle weeks like this. I don't even have a checklist. I don't have anything. Um, I fumbled through this week kind of raw and open and just trying with everything in me to kind of live out the values that we uh, that all of us here at Open Table stay with our words are really, really important. Because if we're honest, a lot of the things that we really lean into here um, have a tendency to feel like ideas or concepts or worse yet, philosophical precepts, you know, just things that we talk about are, are important um, until weeks like this. And then you kind of see where those uh, hit, where the rubber meets the road, where those hit real life. So I dove into this week ready to wrap up our series um, with a study of Acts 15. Um, in fact, just uh, um, texted me Monday at 1230 uh, to ask what commentaries I was going to need um, for this week. Uh, she basically like runs the church now. <laughs> and is the one who makes everything happen. And she, uh, this is how lazy I am. You ready for this? She like takes all my commentaries and puts them in a file so I can listen to them while I'm at work. Like I don't even do anything anymore. And um, so when I'm sheet rocking or doing electrical work or laying carpet or whatever, I've got my commentaries rolling in my head. And so um so she, she texted me at 12.30 to ask, you know, what commentaries I was going to need, where I was preaching, and I, I responded to her. And I was excited to dive into the commentaries for this series, because although I preached this series, this same passage, four years ago, and it was, I probably studied harder for that sermon than I have any sermon in my life. I, I got like a four weeks jump on it, because it's a, it's a pretty theological passage. It's a pretty heavy passage. So I probably worked harder on that sermon than I ever had. And, but I've gotten some new commentaries since then. So I was like excited to see if I could learn something new and, and uh, if they would have anything to say about this chapter. And so uh, I was kind of excited when Jess texted me. I was like, ooh, Acts 15. I was really excited to send that back. And at that point, um, Jess had no idea that three hours later um, her brother would be with Jesus. And If you know me, you got to know that this is going to be tough. And if seeing a grown man cry kind of bugs you, you may want to go play Candy Crush or something. Um, so in that short of a time, in three hours, I went from being really excited about hearing that little AI voice read my commentaries in my ear um, to sitting in the back of an ambulance with Nicole. And I sat in that place. I cannot exaggerate how far from my mind was Acts 15 or the concept of biblical commentaries. But, and from that point to probably yesterday, um, I didn't even think, I, I don't even think I knew what day it was at any point. 
in a week. It, it just it all ran together. At some point this week, Judy and I talked about music, and I was like, I have no idea what Sunday's going to look like. Um, and she was very patient. At some point in the week, Esther and Josh and I talked about the kids' service, and I was like, I don't even have any idea what that should look like. And, and they were patient. At some point, I talked to Graham about youth group and whether it would be crass to, to have youth group in the midst of this, or whether it would be a healthy normalcy and diversion. I don't know what David talked about that. And none of these conversations even felt real when they were happening. Um, have you ever had your kids come to you when you're like in the middle of really adulting and they've got like their four-year-old or five-year-old issues and, and you try to kind of engage it with about 3% of your brain because you're like, I'm doing like heavy stuff here. Like I'm paying bills and you're worried about who took your toy. Come on. Like, that's kind of what it felt like. Like I was like, I was like, church? What? I'm, yeah. Well, Thursday evening, as some of the logistical parts of the week started to kind of taper off, and I had a minute to email the church and think about this morning, I looked over the passage that I was supposed to preach, Acts 15, and and, uh, and honestly, I as I looked through it, I found in a weird way that it not only fit perfectly with what we've been wanting to do with this series, but that we're closing up, uh, but despite this crazy week, um, it also fit what was happening in our church right now. And even though I'm going to get a little bit nerdy, and, and uh, which might seem insensitive uh, a little bit in light of what people are feeling this morning, I, I do think it bears on what we're, uh, what we're going through. So I, I'm going to stick with Acts 15 um, uh, in our series. And though I, I am going to touch on like the historical importance and, uh, of this moment in the book of Acts, uh, and I am going to get a little bit theological I do want you to know that I preached heavily on this passage on October 22nd, 2017, and you can access that on, on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you do want to do a deeper dive into the theology of this passage, the recording quality is terrible. I think back then I had like a little voice recorder. I, I hit record and stuck it on my podium, so it's bad, but but it's there. Um, you can probably even find it on the, on the website if you wanted to, but... Um, but if you want to do that, uh, you can. Brett did an amazing job last week kind of summing up our study for us and um, unpacking this moment when Paul and Barnabas were sent out on the first, like, intentional missions trip. Uh, up until that point, up until chapter 13 in the book, it feels like the church is just trying to keep up with the Holy Spirit. Like, almost nothing is happening intentionally. They're being driven by persecution. They're, the, Peter has a funny, you know, food dream about bacon, which... I've had so many times, and now while while kind of having that dream, the Holy Spirit moves into a whole new location, and and, uh, and so nobody's planning anything at this point. Nothing's intentional. They're just trying to keep up um, until chapter thirteen. Uh, this is the moment, kind of during a prayer meeting, God speaks to the leaders at Antioch and, and tells them to separate out Paul and Barnabas for this special work, and uh, and this has always been significant to me because. I believe that that's kind of how our callings work. I think we generally find our callings in community. Uh, I don't think God usually, like in some deep isolation, gives us our... Not that he can't, but I think generally we find our real purpose and our real calling in community. Like we act out our gifts and people are like, wow, you are really good at that. Or that's really um, 
a need we have here. That's kind of generally how we find our, our calling. So I think it's significant that Paul and Barnabas don't even get the call. God tells the elders of the church, hey, set aside Paul and Barnabas because I have a work for them. And so they find their calling in community. So the leaders get the word, and Paul and Barnabas, um, you know, kind of set out on the very first planned spread of the gospel. This one's like organized, it's planned, and they, they have an, an intentionality about it. And from that point to today's passage, Paul and Barnabas travel city to city preaching Jesus. Um, they generally start in the Jewish synagogue. At each city, they would find a synagogue in that city, and, and uh, when kind of the core Jews would reject the message, they would turn to the Gentiles, usually the Gentiles that kind of hung around the synagogue because they liked hearing what the Jews were talking about. Um, but the majority of the people getting saved on this missionary journey um, are non-Jewish people. And I don't think that was the plan. I don't think they were expecting that. I think the reason Paul and Barnabas generally spoke at the synagogue was because they uh, expected the Jews to really gobble up this message. It is, after all, a mostly Jewish message. At this point, it, it was the fulfillment of a long backstory. It was a Jewish thing. Um, even though Cornelius and his crew got saved, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, this is a Jewish Messiah. He fulfills a long Jewish story, especially this kind of long wait for the heir of King David. Um, so I think Paul launched on this missionary journey fully expecting a huge Jewish response. Um, and was likely surprised that the, the Gentiles, who had virtually zero connection to the backstory, um, were inexplicably falling in love with Jesus. They really had, had no way to expect that response. Uh, chapter 13, where Brett left off all the way through all of chapter 14, um, is, is this journey of this kind of unexpected outcome of Gentile converts, which flows directly into today's passage at the beginning of Acts 15. I'll be reading um, in Acts chapter 15, if you want to follow in your own Bible or app. If not, the words will be on the screen. While Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you're circumcised, as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit those believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised and are required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve the issue. At the meeting, a long discussion, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know how God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirms that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why do you now challenge God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we all are saved the same way. 
by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Everyone listened quietly, and Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James said, and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles and took, the, uh, and took from them a people for himself. And this conversion of the Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted, as it is written. Afterward, I'll return and restore the fallen house of David. I'll rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles. All of those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He, he who made these things known so long ago. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles to be turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating foods offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating meat uh, of strangled animals, or consume blood. For these uh, laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish, Jewish synagogues in every city and on every Sabbath for many generations. This is the word of the Lord. So this uh, drama starts in Antioch, uh, which is sort of quickly becoming the church headquarters. Uh, it's, it, it's a little strange and probably uncomfortable for the, for the people living at the time, but really the book of Acts from now on uh, is going to center around Antioch. Jerusalem just kind of falls in the back scene. We don't really hear about Jerusalem much after this scene. Antioch is going to be the hub, um, kind of the new headquarters uh, of the church. Um, uh, and, and Antioch is different than Jerusalem. It, it has a different culture. It has a different scene, if you want to call it that. Uh, Luke actually tells us that it was at Antioch that the believers first became called Christians, um, which sounds totally normal to us because we're so familiar with that word. But at the time, it was a little unique because Christ is a Greek word, not a Hebrew word. Um, and so the fact that the, the title that the new believers were carrying wasn't uh, messianics or messiah the word that the Jewish word is messiah um, that, that kind of tied into this big long backstory of, of David's coming king um, but Greek uh, the Greek word for the same similar concept was Christ and so the, the when Luke tells us that what he's kind of saying it was at Antioch that, that the church took a, a Greek name that they became Christians no longer followers of Messiah, but now they're, they're taking on this Greek flavor, this Gentile flavor. Things were changing. Uh, and I think this really indicates that, that Antioch is going in a different direction than Jerusalem. Um, in today's passage, that division comes to a head, um, and things really begin to, uh, uh, to boil uh, in this, this kind of tension that's been creating as these two churches kind of go in two different directions. A group of Jews that we generally call the Judaizers, uh, historically, they're probably Pharisees and other kind of strict Jewish people that did believe in Jesus, but they were they came from a strict Jewish background. Um, believed that, uh, that these new Gentile believers needed to get circumcised and follow Torah uh, in, once they're saved. And, and generally, we treat these guys like they're the bad guys. These are the guys that. Um, they oppose Paul, and Paul's always been our hero. So we think of these Judaizers who are clinging to the rules, clinging to the religion, um, when now the church is about faith, and we, and we treat them like they're, like they're the evil ones. But before you get too judgy, I mean, think about what we do. 
Like we have a tendency to do this exact same thing. Most of us, I dare say, all of us do this. We are great. I don't know any believers that aren't great at welcoming the most debaucherous sinners when they put their faith in Jesus. I mean, really, the farther they they come to Christ, the more we rejoice when they when they do return. Like it, 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 we're excited that those people would want to get saved. So when a stripper or a drug addict or a thief or a vegetarian comes to Christ, we're like <laughs> excited that they want to follow Jesus and we celebrate. We rejoice that, that the love of God can reach anyone at all. <laughs> You're a vegetarian. I'm sorry. That's, that's actually my clean vegetarian joke. I'll share the other one with you another time. Um, but once they're in the family, things change, don't they? We're like, hey, there's a few rules, regulations. There's certain way you got to act. There's, a, there's things you're going to have to do now that you're in. Like, we're excited that you're in. Like, and we love your background because it, it reaffirms what we're doing. Man, now that you're here, we're going to need you to clean up a little bit. And that's what these guys were doing. It, 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 they weren't evil. They're just saying, we love that the Gentiles are here. Don't villainize these people. They're like, we are so glad that God's grace has extended that far. Now that you're here, it's time to start straightening up a little bit. They've been in a 1,500-year-old story. If you go back to Moses, you go up to Abraham, it's even farther. And this is all they, they knew. This is what it means to be the people of God. This is what it means to follow God. And so now that you're here, you need to do it. The Gentiles were the new kids on the block, and they didn't know how it was done. And so these people step in to go, here's how it's done. Here's how you act now that you're in the family. A few simple guidelines. And just like we question somebody who, who recently got saved, but really their lifestyle hasn't changed at all, and it starts to bug us because they're not cleaning up the way we think they should, the Judaizers say this, unless you've been circumcised, as required by the law of Moses, you can't be saved. And please bear in mind that, that these are people in the church. These are people who, who really believe in Jesus. They're part of the community. They're part of the people of God. And these people step in and go, yeah, but are you really, if you're not doing the things, are you really part of the people of God if you're not kind of following the rules? This is closer to us hearing that someone's a Christian, but their lifestyle doesn't look like a Christian to us. So we're like, are they really... Can you really be a Christian and vote like that? Can you really be a Christian and do those things, live like that? What's that? What, are, are you really saved? Can you feel the tension? Don't, don't. If you if you treat these guys like they're the devil and, and Paul is obviously the, the good guy, you're going to miss the real power of this story, the real tension that's going on here because uh, because Acts 15. If we read it as though there's a foregone conclusion that Paul's going to win, uh, then you kind of you kind of miss the import of this because this is the very first church council. Like if you study in secular history books, when they go through all the church councils, the Council of Trent, the Council of Chalcedon, the Council of blah 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 blah, all the way up to modern day, it always starts with the Council of Jerusalem, which is Acts 15. And, and the, the church has held these councils in one form or another for 2,000 years. And this really makes this kind of a big deal. 
They didn't call church councils over small things. You know, this, we, can we use a guitar? Should we stick with the piano? But let's call a council. No, that's not. They don't. They didn't do that. It had to be like a pretty major theological question. And, and, and usually, when you have these kind of things, it's because both sides have great arguments. Both sides, like if it was easy, they would just talk it through it and, and, and settle it. But when you call a church council, it means it's hard. It's complicated. To a Jew, Jesus is only Jesus because of the Old Testament. No matter how many miracles he performed, no matter how many people he healed, no matter how many people he fed with a couple McDonald's filet of fish, he's only Jesus because the Old Testament says he was Jesus. If, if not for all the Old Testament story and prophecy, he's just another prophet at best. He's only Jesus because of the whole story. Even with the resurrection, I don't know that any, any Jew could have followed Jesus if he were changing the story. After 1,500 years, maybe 3,000 years to go back to Abraham, I, I don't think you, you could follow a guy, even with the resurrection, if, if he were scrapping the old story and starting new. There's too much history. And so the, to the Jews, it only makes sense that all that history come with it. They, they, they couldn't have done it any other way. So to the Jews, Jesus was awesome. He was everything. He was the Son of God. But really, nothing about their relationship to Torah had changed. For, for the most part, he was just the fulfillment of everything that had already been happening. But I do think something dramatically changed when Cornelius got saved. Peter led Cornelius to Jesus. And remember um, how I've been pointing out every time kind of a new people group gets saved, the Holy Spirit falls in this, in this very tangible um, visible way, almost like God is confirming to the apostles, yes, these people are in as well. Like, I've dumped the Holy Spirit on them the exact same way I did you. It happened the first time since Samaritans got saved. It happened the first time some Gentiles got saved. Every time God saves somebody that the apostles are a little confused about, God sends the Holy Spirit in a way that's very understandably the same as Pentecost. And it happens to Cornelius. Uh, and it's kind of a big deal. Um, at the tail end of Peter's message to Cornelius, he says this, And we apostles, did I lose this? No, oh, of We apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us, whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He's the one of all the, who all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to this message. You know, first, this sermon is how I know that Peter had become a true preacher by this point. When he relays this story back to the church, when he went back and they were like, dude, you went to a Gentile. And he kind of tells them the story. He says, when I had barely begun to start speaking, the Holy Spirit fell. And only a true preacher can sound disappointed that the Holy Spirit fell before he got a chance to finish his sermon. Like, that's a, that's a true... Not to mention, Peter, I only read the tale end. Peter had said quite a bit 
before this happened, and he was like, man, I barely got started. I would love to know how much more Peter had ready, um, because to him, he was like, man, I was just in the beginning, and I know that feeling when people start yawning, and you're like, dude, I'm just getting started. What are you... <laughs> I'm kidding. Second, I do think it's noteworthy that the Holy Spirit falls immediately after Peter says, um, everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. It's almost like they were listening to Peter and all the history of Jesus and all the backstory, and they were just waiting for the how. And the second Peter drops the how, all those who believe in him are saved. It's just like they were believing as they were hearing it, and the Holy Spirit falls. I think that's a, a pretty powerful thing. But if you remember this guy Cornelius, who is now manifesting the Spirit of God, just like the Jews, ten minutes ago was falling on the ground trying to worship Peter. Like, this is not, not a guy who, who has the Jewish lineage at all. Like, he had his worship so off, like ten minutes ago, and now he's full of the Holy Spirit, exactly like Peter. And I, I think this had to bring Peter some clarity. Because everyone up to this point who had gotten saved um, was part of the old narrative. So they, were, they, they had ties to the old story, not only genetically, but narratively. Um, they were tied to Abraham and Moses and Torah and, and the, the, the history that was going on here. So, uh, so did the Jewish believers completely believe in Jesus? Yes. But did they also keep Sabbath like a good Jew? Yes. Did they eat kosher like any good Jew? Yes. Did they stay away from infectious mildew like any good Jew was? Yes. Did they refuse to wear mixed fabrics like a good Jew? Yes. So even though they knew in their heads that they were saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus, they also kept the Jewish laws because they always had. So can you see how that might make things a little tense and confusing? Like you, you believe theologically that it's only by the grace of God, but everybody you know also does the things they're supposed to do. I mean, have you ever been in a room full of Christians and they're all talking about how God like saves them by the grace of God and, and not by my works? And you're like, if you guys are the wicked sinners, I still don't know if I qualify because <laughs> like everybody still seems to have their stuff together. Like, everybody says it's by the grace of God, but everybody also lives pretty good lives, and I feel like I'm a mess, so I don't, you know, I don't know if I fit. Do they also feel like that, or is it just me? Okay. I think the Jewish believers probably struggled with that. They were thrilled that the Messiah had come and fulfilled their story, but I don't know that they had any reason to change their lifestyle. Their lifestyles had always been obeying the Jewish laws. Other than maybe Matthew, who was a tax collector. I'm sure Matthew experienced like this real grace um, awakening, but everybody else had always been good observant Jews, as far as we know. When the Holy Spirit fell on, on this guy, this Cornelius, who didn't keep Sabbath, who ate bacon, God love him, and probably didn't know what an infectious mildew was, and probably wore whatever clothes were most comfortable, no matter what fabrics they were made of, when he gets saved, I suspect for Peter it was, it was a confirmation that this thing really is not attached to behavior. This really isn't attached to, to, to obeying the rules. He probably had some, some theological suspicions in that direction beforehand, like understood it conceptually. But up until the point that this Gentile 
who had no ties to Torah is just as filled with the Holy Spirit as he is, does Peter get that it's not about obeying Torah? Which means Peter had proof that this is not a behavioral thing. And, and at the Council of Jerusalem, in our passage today, Peter draws on that experience. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to, to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he had to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors are able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of Jesus. Now bear in mind, these are believers in Jesus who are not living according to the Old Testament, which at that point was the only Bible they had. There is no other Bible. So, so to, to say it blunt, these are believing Christians who are not living according to Scripture. Can you feel the tension? Did that just make anybody else uncomfortable? And Peter's conclusion was, we're all saved by grace. And you might even put it in the form of a question. Are we saved by grace or not? Is it grace or not? And that's a hard question. And believe me, this question runs very deep, and I'd love to follow it all the way down to its theological conclusions, but it doesn't really fit our purpose for this study this year. So again, if you want more of the theological conclusion, go dig up that message from October 22nd, 2017, titled Gentiles and Torah. I kind of follow it all the way to the end. But for this year, the big issue is kind of the conclusion of this council. After Peter shares his experience, Paul and Barnabas tell everything that they've seen on their travels, everything God is doing, and then James steps up and makes this suggestion. So my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So they suggest a couple boundaries that were based on kind of the rampant, current, Hellenistic cultures, some sins that were really bad then, and they sent Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch with a letter kind of freeing the Gentiles from any covenantal responsibility to Torah. And everyone rejoiced. Now, there's simply no way to overemphasize how significant this moment is to church the way we do it today. Because although there, there's kind of these huge theological um, issues hinging on the separation of the Jewish church and the Gentile church, Things like, should Gentiles obey the Old Testament? That's a big question. Or, what do we do with Old Testament promises to God's people? Do those apply to us or just to Jews? Another big question. Or, what about things like replacement theology, which I feel this passage absolutely debunks. You know, that the, the church kind of replaces Israel. I don't believe that at all. And honestly, we could spend months unpacking all this, but... If we're honest, most of us just take church for granted, right? We just, this is all we've known, so we do it the way we do it, because that's the way we do it. We don't think much about why we do exactly what we do. Which is ironic, because that's exactly what the Judaizers were doing. The bad guys in this story, that's exactly what they were doing. They were like, well, we just assume we're going to do it the way we've always done it. Most, most of us are like, 
following Jesus is following Jesus. We don't care if you're Jewish or German or Irish, whatever. Come, follow Jesus with us. Come on to the church and act like us. Which is exactly what the Jew guys are doing. We don't care if you're Jews or Gentiles or whatever. Come on to the church and act like us. But this passage today marks both a break and a starting point. From this point on, the Gentile church is free to figure out what church looks like. And honestly, that's both exciting and terrifying. The only liturgy, the only ritual, the only festivals, the only disciplines that existed at this point came from Torah. And they've now kind of been set free from that. In some ways, this is exciting. Like circumcision before anesthesia or plain scalpels. That's a good thing. Escaping that fate is nice, but it is also scary to be untethered. To have to wonder that, that what worship should look like and which holy days to celebrate and whether or not to play a modern worship music or only a hymn. And the church has fought on and off over this stuff for 2,000 years on what church should look like. And it's like we've forgotten James's words. My judgment is that we should not make it difficult. Translation, why would you make this hard and stressful? If someone is chasing Jesus, why would, why would you do anything to make that difficult? You have to do it this way. No, if you don't do it, that's not the way we've always done it. Why would we do that? Now, when I first laid out my outline for the summer, including this passage, I was anxious to get to this point because I want to talk about small groups. And, 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 and this, if this week has taught me anything, it's taught me that small groups are crazy important. We need people. We, we need people that we're close to and we're doing life with, people that know your story and help you write it. And the beauty of this passage is that it shows us that there is no strict way to define church. The Judaizers tried that. The council said no. Church happens right here in this room on Sunday mornings when we pray and sing and bless children and study scripture and gather around the table together. And it happens when we eat fried chicken and drink coffee and cry about how hard our day was as our people lay their hands on us and pray for us in someone's living room. That is also church. Because you can't define church. The Jerusalem Council made sure you couldn't. No, no, no. We're not going to make this hard. We're going to give you the freedom to gather in Jesus' presence. Neither is more church than the other because Jesus is in the midst of both. And today's passage leaves it up to us to figure out what church should look like. And this hit home to me this week especially because I feel like I've been at church all week. Monday, and then on through the rest of the week, in the midst of the shock and confusion and anger and severe grief, there was a presence. In fact, I was talking to Matt on Friday. About how all week long, people would gather at Brian and Chris's and do nothing. Nobody did anything. We just sat together. We would eat and sometimes cry. 
We'd tell stories and sometimes laugh. We would hug and sometimes sing. We'd make plans and we would sometimes sit in silence. And the whole thing was so church. And I can tell you, as hard as it is to be around that much grief and that much pain, it is a thousand times harder to not be around it. To be on the outside of it. And I know some of you felt that. Some of you, because you tested me and you, you felt the pain and you were like, I'm, I'm, is there anything I can do? Is there any, any way I can help? It feels so terrible to be outside of that. It's hard to know that your people are hurting and, and you're stuck outside. And it's weird because nothing changes when you grieve with everyone else as they're grieving. It doesn't bring Josiah back. It doesn't make tomorrow any easier to face. It doesn't answer any of the questions that haunt you. And still, there's something markedly different when you gather. And we feel it on Sundays too. I mean, it's fairly rare for you to leave Sunday, you know, here on any given Sunday with any of your real questions answered. You don't generally walk away with your life tangibly different than when you walked in. A lot of times, you don't even feel smarter. If I'm preaching, it's equally likely you're confused and frustrated and sitting in a tension that you hate. And yet there's something that draws us together. And while we're here in the collected presence of Jesus, the world pauses for a minute. It just feels better to be together. I believe that's what the Council of Jerusalem was counting on. They sent the church out with virtually no guidance for how they're supposed to act or what they're supposed to do. But they trusted that if Jesus was at the center of it all, it was going to be okay. And that's what I saw this week. I saw Jesus at the center of everything. He was at the center of the grief. He was at the center of the stories. He was at the center of the food that people brought, desperate to do anything to help. Jesus was at the center of the singing and the planning and the silence. And in that concentrated presence... Over the course of the week, I got to watch the Mason family find their butt. I don't know if you remember when we talk about the lament psalms and how these beautiful passages of Scripture are so full of anger and confusion and sorrow and even bitterness. And as the psalmist processes all these emotions in God's presence, they always come to that point where after dumping all of this raw honesty on God, they say, but I know you're still faithful. In fact, Psalms 13, which is kind of the quintessential lament psalm, reads like this. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, oh Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But. God, that's a beautiful word. 
but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice, for you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he's good to me. This week I had the absolute privilege to get to watch this and witness it in real time. It's not like the grief is gone. It's not like everything is okay. It's not like any healing is complete. It's just that we found our butt. So how do we respond to this? There's a lot going on in this chapter. This might take a minute, but first, the conclusion that Peter comes to is that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, is saved by faith in Jesus, period. If you live under grace but, then you don't live under grace. Grace but is not grace at all. Grace is either completely and utterly undeserved and unconnected to your behavior, or it's not grace. Which begs the question, can a follower of Jesus live however they want to? Can you ignore Scripture and do whatever you want and still believe in Jesus? That's a hard question that we don't like to wrestle with. And you don't have to agree with me, but I believe yes. Yes, you can. You can believe in Jesus and ignore Scripture. Luther said it this way, sin boldly, but believe in Jesus more boldly. And that's hard. And this, of course, begs the question, then why are all the rules in the Bible? If you're allowed to ignore them and, follow, and just follow Jesus and His grace saves you, then why are they there? But for me, this is where Scripture gets truly beautiful. Because if you feel an obligation to obey Scripture, if you feel a duty to be obedient, then Scripture is a burden at some level. It's a weight you carry. But once you come to the conclusion that your relationship with God is restored by the work of Jesus and God's amazing grace, and those things alone, period, then you're left with this question. Do you believe that God has your best interest at heart? Then it's a faith question. How much faith do I put in the wisdom of God? Do I trust God's character and His love for me? Because if I do, I will approach the Word of God differently. I will approach His Word like this beautiful offer of a good life. This beautiful offer, not a burden or a responsibility, but an offer to do it right. To have a to have to live life, real life, blessed life. It's not a burden because I don't have to do it. But I want, but I want to because God has said this is the way to live. This is the way that that you live a good life. And because I have faith in it, because I trust His character, because I trust His heart, I want to do those things because I believe it's the way to, to live best. God knows. God, in His Word, basically asks us to have faith that He knows what's best for our relationships, for our finances, for our health, for our need for rest, for whatever. He knows what's best for us. And if I trust Him, I trust that He knows what I need. God's way is best. And once we find that place, how can we ever judge somebody else? In fact, there's a verse in this chapter that I absolutely love. And it drives a lot of what I do, honestly. In the letter that they wrote, that the council wrote together to send to the Gentile Christians, 
They start the letter like this. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these two things. These are the apostles speaking. At this point, there is no better theological uh, authorities than these guys. If anybody has ever had the, the power and authority to say, this is what is, it was these guys. Pretty much, if, if anybody can define for the church what things are supposed to look like with, with, with definitive authority, it's the people writing this letter. And all they say is, this is what seems best to us. We've prayed about it. We feel like we've got the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It seems good to us and the Holy Spirit to do this. So even though I have some like, pretty strong opinions theologically, I try to never speak with more certainty than that. Then it seems good to the Holy Spirit that we do things like this. To, to the Holy Spirit to us as we talk and we pray. Never am I going to say, this is how it's supposed to be done. I can't. The apostles wouldn't even do it. They were like, we prayed hard. We talked. We argued. This is kind of what we came up with. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So I have a confession to make. And I have a tendency, even though I never name names, to throw some types of churches under the bus. Because we do things dramatically differently and, and it bugs me the way they do things. But to be honest, there, there is no set way to do church. And it's wrong of me to do that. Big, small, loud, reverent, liturgical, spontaneous. If Jesus is at the center of it, it's church. So please like, join me in, in repenting of my judgmentalism towards some churches. There's simply no right way to do church. We're just trying to figure out how to pursue Jesus with all of our hearts and in community together. And the most we can, we can ever say at, at, at OTCC is that we do what seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And finally, please, please, please consider getting plugged into small groups. You need people and people need you. We're a community, and, and seeing each other only once a week for a couple hours is not enough. Especially when I, when I fill the majority of that with my jabber. So please jump into a, jump into a small group. It, it's not a Bible study. It's not a prayer meeting. It's not a support group. It, it's all of those things. It's church. It's what it is. And if this week has taught me anything, it's that we, we need as much church as we can get. Let's go to the table.